we're uh, going to be taking the next step in our Abraham series here. And, uh, and today we're looking at chapter 20. And uh, you can turn with me to chapter 20 and you can be looking at it. Josh read it for us in the beginning, so I'm not going to reread the whole thing. A few of you probably weren't in here yet, um, but that's where we're going. So uh, just join me in a word of prayer as we seek the Lord. Actually, before I do that, I know this is weird, but I sensed while we were worshiping we need to do this, okay? Just call me weird, okay? But uh, if you can, you don't have to stand up necessarily, but if you can just turn to the person next to you, and this is what we're going to say to each other. You can say anything you want, but this is one thing I want you to say, which is, I'm glad you're here. God bless you. I'm glad you're here. God bless you. If you don't know a name, then you can introduce yourselves as well. You might have to take turns, you know, saying that. All right. Thank you. Now let's pray. Father God, we give you honor and praise. We just thank you, God, because this fellowship that we enjoy here is only possible because of your gift to us of bringing us into your presence. And this covenant that we have together, this, this is the bride of Christ. There is a marriage that takes place when we, uh, step, when we get baptized, when we give our lives to you. We realize that connects us not just to you, but it connects us to one another. And so we're in this thing together, and that's all by your grace. And we're really, we are truly grateful for the fact that we're in a family here, a church family, a spiritual family. And God, we realize that's not all roses. I mean, that is not all easy. At times, like, we all have our stuff, right? And just like any relationship, we all have our stuff, and we're very different from each other. And yet you allow this to be a place where, like, because we trust you and because the entire entrance into the kingdom of God is about you forgiving us in the same way you call us to a place of wide-open commitment and forgiveness with one another, which allows us to kind of grow and expand and learn and not have to like micromanage every step of our lives or walk in fear, but have the freedom to actually like figure out life together in you. And that's just such a gift, God, and we thank you for that. Um, we ask that right now you'd help us to understand your scriptures more in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this is uh, this passage here. If you weren't here in the beginning... Um, what happens in this passage is there's this king, Abimelech, who we hear about before and we'll hear about again, who's in relatively in the land of Canaan, the Philistines. And uh, Abraham goes back to the land of Canaan. And when he does, he tells Sarah, hey, I want you to say that you're my sister. Okay? Now, as Josh was reading that, or as I'm talking about that, you might have this strange sense of deja vu. Like, didn't we already read this? Earlier in the week, on Monday night, uh, we were having our prayer time together as a family at night before we go to bed, and uh, we did this thing where we were praying for the person on our left and asking them what they wanted to pray for, prayer for. And Colton, I was on Colton's left, and so he said, what do you want prayer for? And I said, well, I'm supposed to be doing sermon prep tomorrow. I, I hope I can actually get to it. I got a lot going on. So pray that God will help me like, stay focused on that, and that he'll reveal to me what he wants us at Parker Ford to hear from this text. And Evan says, what are you preaching on? And I said, I'm pre like Abraham says that, Sarah's his sister instead of his wife and it causes all these problems and he's like you already preached on that <laughs> 
And I was like, yeah, that's when he did it with Pharaoh. This is when he does it with Abimelech. And Evan's response is awesome. He says, why does he keep doing that? (laughs) And Jen was like, that's what you should call the title of this message. Why does he keep doing that? Instead, the title of this message is, am I walking in circles? And the reason is because I think we can relate to this where we're like, I thought I dealt with this. I thought this was dealt with, but I'm coming back to it again and I'm dealing with it again. And which one of us can't relate to it? But the similarities are so striking in this story with chapter 12 and Egypt that some scholars have thought that these are two, at, two angles on the same story. You know, like when Matthew writes a gospel and Luke writes a gospel and you get different pictures of, of the stories. Some have thought it's two angles, but we, we can't really do that because the details are different enough that you can't justify the two. Um, but what, what I find interesting is when things don't make sense to us or when our lives are so messed up that that can't possibly be the case that we have a tendency to question the Bible. You know, maybe the Bible's messed up. Uh, Maybe the Bible doesn't see this the way it should be. And the scholars are saying, how could that guy be that? There's no way that he could do that exact same thing twice. Maybe this is just two angles on the same story. And I, I find that at times in our lives, because of the circumstances of our lives, And because of what makes sense to us, we really want to question the reality of the Bible. Because there's a tendency within us to think that our minds and the way we see things is really the starting point of reality. And it's never the starting point. We are so messed up and so twisted in our minds and so limited in our ability to see things that that there's a part of the, the faith for us is the assumption that right here is truth. I, don't, I can't comprehend truth, and yet I have to find a way to submit to the Lord through how he's revealing himself in the scripture, even and especially when it doesn't make sense. And I can't get this to make sense to me. It's good to try to make sense of it and to study it and try to make sense of it, but when it doesn't make sense, I still have to assume that God sees something that I can't see. And so don't make this say what I think. Make me live what this says, right? Um, we could have another message on that, but we're not going to do that. The two things that are very uh, bizarre about this passage, one is that a 90-year-old woman can still cause this much problem with her beauty. You know, people are like, wait, she's 90, and they're still having all these problems with the fact that this guy wants her because she's so gorgeous and all of that, and yet it's this 90-year-old woman who's about to have a baby too. There's something going on with this woman because of the presence of God, and there's something happening. The second thing that's really bizarre about the passage is, of course, what we've mentioned, and this is what I want to focus on today, is that we think it's impossible that a guy who made this big of a mistake in Egypt, and if you've been tracking with us through the series, you realize that when he made this mistake in Egypt and he told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister and Pharaoh took him into his harem, and the assumption is is that they were actually, in every sense, she became his wife, the wife of Pharaoh. That the ramifications of that in Abraham's life and in his family's life were huge. I mean, Hagar, Ishmael, Lot, all of these issues that they had in their life that came directly from that decision that he made. And yet years later, after all of those decisions and after all of those problems, he returns and does the exact same thing again. No way. There's no way that he could actually do that until we stop and think about ourselves. And we say, you know what? 
He could do that. He could do that. I want you to think for a second about your, your consistent struggles. The things you struggle with consistently. You know, maybe that thing that you thought you forgave, but you keep coming back to holding on to it. Maybe those thought patterns in your life, the lust or the pornography that you thought you got over, but you're still coming back to it and struggling with it. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that I thought I learned how to control my tongue and not talk about someone else behind their back, but it's become so pervasive in my life now I don't even realize it's gossip anymore. It's just kind of like whatever, you know. Whatever the thing is, you know, whether it's uh, not being truthful, not being honest, if it's uh, maybe perhaps the, the despair in my life that I'm not embracing the hope that comes in Christ, but I keep finding myself in kind of like the, the ever-ending like gloom and doom kind of thought about my life. Whatever it is, I want you to hold on to that because what I want to do today, this is one of those texts that we could do so much with, but what I actually want to do today is I want to just practically go after in this text the repetitive nature of his struggle and say, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the repetitive nature of our struggles? And I want to take three, three points, make three points about it, okay? Um, and the first point is this. What is going on that's causing this struggle? And here's the point, is that our behaviors shape our beliefs and our beliefs shape our behaviors, it goes both ways. So there was something that Abraham was believing wrong that allowed him to do this, and there was something about the behavior that was taking place that allowed him to see things the way he was seeing them. Right? And so uh, that happens both ways. And uh, the, the way that we first see, the, uh, an easy way to see this in society is addiction. The picture of addiction, whatever, you know, maybe some of us are struggle with uh, certain food addictions or chemical addictions, whatever it is, uh, the addictions that we struggle with. What science has proven very clearly uh, uh, that in the psychology of our, of our mind, what happens is you make a bad choice, okay? And we, I make this choice, I'm much more likely to make that same choice again because I made it once. And then once I make that choice twice, it's starting to form a groove in my brain. And the more and more I choose that thing, the more it changes now the way my brain actually works. And because that groove is formed in my brain, now the way I see my life and the way I see that behavior begins to change. And this thing that on the onset back here looked so bad, now that I'm deeply and heavily in it, it's just kind of commonplace. And not only do I not see that thing the same way, I see the rest of my life differently because I'm affected now by that behavior that has taken root in my life. In a, in, in, and so psychologically and, and, and physiologically, we would call that a groove in the brain, a pattern, an addiction in the brain that changes the way we view things. So my behavior shaped the way I view life. In the, in the spiritual sense, what we would call this is a stronghold. Every, the stronghold is every assumption or pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. What it means is, is that there's an area in my life that isn't exposed to Jesus right now because I've morphed myself so much that Christ doesn't even have access to this anymore. Let me explain it a little more practically. It means a sin is anything that separates me from God or from another person. 
So if I go up to Mike and I just jack him, you know, then we have a problem. You know, we do, our relationship is broken because I just sinned against Mike. I violated him. I disrespected him. And until we get that thing healed, we're separated. When God has standards, and those aren't just random standards, they're things of his love and his image toward us. And when I violate that, there's something that kind of separates us, right? And until that thing is restored, that, that, that sin is the breach in our relationship. Now, here's the difference between a sin and a stronghold. A stronghold is when I disrespect Mike on a regular basis without even knowing I'm disrespecting him anymore. I'm not even aware of the disrespect. So I'm not making a choice to disrespect him. I'm just in a posture of disrespect toward him because there's something in me that doesn't even know what I'm doing to him is wrong. And that happens to us all the time. And addiction, this takes place all the time. When we're in a posture of addiction with sin, we get to the place where we're choosing that sin, but we're not even choosing anymore. It's just kind of part of our life. And habitual sin, habitual patterns that separate me from God or separate me from my spouse or separate me from my friends, the the habitual things that cause tension in those relationships that I'm not even aware of, spiritually speaking, they're called strongholds. And they're all based on something. They're based on a lie. And that lie is a belief that I have. And I might not acknowledge that I have that belief, but it's there because my beliefs shape my behaviors as much as my behaviors shape my beliefs. So when I'm behaving a certain way, I start to think differently. And we were just talking about this in Sunday school class. Mike was saying, you know, there's that moment where you can justify what you're justifying. And you get to the point where you're like, I know that I have the right to do such and such or think such and such. And eventually you get to the place where you justify the justification and then you don't even have to think about it anymore. You can just live that way and feel free in your conscience, you know? And that's when we have, there's a grip on us. The problem isn't that I'm breaking moral code so I'm a bad person. The problem is I can't live in the freedom that God created me to live in, in him and in relationship with other people because I'm stuck in this pattern. Abraham in this situation is not living in the freedom of his relationship with his wife. He's not protecting his wife. Their relationship is compromised. Every time he gets around a powerful man, he says, this is my sister, so that the guy can take his wife. That's a problem. That's a problem. What in the world is going on psychologically with this guy? What is the pattern that's been put in his place? What is he thinking? That's what we would say. We would say, dude, what are you thinking? And what he's thinking has been changed because of other things he was thinking that have been cemented because of behaviors. The 12 steps. When you're part of an addiction, you know there's the 12 steps. Remember, what the, anybody who's been through this, you might know what the first step is. I am powerless to handle this situation. Step number one, powerless. Because the the base lie about an addiction is, I got this, right? No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have this. You're powerless. Second thing is that there is a higher power who can help me with this, right? So I actually have to say, I can't handle this, and there's someone who can. And then I have to say, and I'm going to give my life over. I'm going to resign my own will and my own mentality. I'm not the one in charge. The one who is higher is in charge. And then, fourthly, I'm going to be really honest with myself and with other people about what's taking place so that we can have accountability around whether or not he's in charge or I'm in charge. 
right? And so those are the first, the first four, we're laying that out. That's the same thing when it comes to under, taking out, when we have repetitive, habitual struggles in our life, we have to get to the place where whatever the thought process is that's snuck in there, that's allowing this to stay in place, we have to let the Bible speak to us and say, here's where the lie is, man. If you want to be free, if you want to live life in its fullness, you got to trust this thing instead of trusting you. And those lies can come in all sorts of forms. I was brainstorming about this this week. Let me give you a, a, just a random smattering of them. None of these are for the purpose of like, oh, Tim's trying to shame us and beat us up. All these are, are the basic things that we tend to justify that get us in these patterns where we get locked down. And you could think of a hundred of your own, but I'll give you a few. I don't have enough time to read my Bible. It doesn't really hurt anyone when I look at her that way. I can't afford to tithe right now. I'm not gossiping, I'm just venting to a friend. I know, I know, I know, but this needs to get done right now. If I get this, life will be awesome. What I said was pretty much true. I'm on my own, so I have to look out for me. I need to be careful giving to the poor. It could enable unhealthy behavior. Prayer is good, but it doesn't seem to really work for me. I'll just have a few (laughs) M&Ms. If this changes, then I'll be happy. I have a right to be mad at her. This is my hard-earned money. It's up to me what to do with it. We just aren't compatible. I'm not really gifted at talking about God. How would we know if we're good together without being intimate? Saying no is bad. All right. You could think of like a hundred other ones, right? All lies that we can use to justify um, behaviors that ultimately set in and become patterns. Now listen, this is the way this works. We actually need to take time and reflect and say our behaviors are based on assumptions. And those assumptions, we actually need to take inventory. And Abraham, one of the things that boggles my mind, I don't know if Abraham understood the level of ramifications that took place in his life. When we read the Bible and look back at all the things, like Hagar would have never been a part of their family if he hadn't done what he did in Egypt by selling out Sarah, which means he would have never had adultery. He would have never had this other son. They wouldn't have had the national problems they have with the two different nations. All of those things wouldn't have happened. I don't know if Abraham stopped and thought about that or not. What I do know is, is that if we want our lives to actually move forward in God in freedom, it's important that we take inventory and that we stop and ask the Lord to help us explore, are my behaviors aligning with your word and the truth of your word? Not because I'm trying to beat myself up and not because I'm trying to get more holy, but because if you're the author of truth and if you're the designer of my life, then I want you to take every part of my life and match it up with how you've designed me to live. And we need to stop and take inventory. And I'm not sure that Abraham ever really did that. 
Because there's a couple of things that he really missed. And so there's two things that I think are assumptions that he missed, okay? Here's, there's a stronghold that was in his mind, and then there's also an iniquity. By the way, another Bible term here is iniquity. You know what the difference between sin and iniquity is? The difference between sin and a stronghold is when I don't have to choose anymore, the stronghold is just I believe wrong. Iniquity is when that takes over a family or a culture, so a whole culture doesn't even believe this is wrong anymore. That's iniquity. When, when now it's easy to justify any sort of behavior because the whole society around me believes that that's right. Right? And so when I hurry, hurry, hurry to get lots and lots done and I never take time to stop and actually engage in relationship or take time with God, our culture says that's appropriate because you're supposed to maximize every minute and you're supposed to be super efficient and you're supposed to do this. And I never feel even convicted about how much I'll press my life because that's actually a value in our society. That's an iniquity as opposed to patience. Right? So there's one iniquity and one stronghold that Abraham deals with here. The stronghold, well, I'll go with the iniquity first. The way he viewed women was wrong, evil, bad. The way Abraham viewed his wife, the way Abimelech viewed his wife, the way Lot viewed his daughters, the way people in general in society in that moment viewed women was bad. It was evil. It was not the way God created men to look at women. It was not what God had in mind when he said, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he made them. That means that together they reflect the image of God. And yet in this society, it was very clear there was men and then there was women. You know, and there was this idea that like the men were the ones who it was all about and there was a commodity that was woman. Might be the highest commodity, but man, she looks good. And there was such an objectification of women. And on a week when Hugh Hefner died, we'll remember that it is part of our society as well. And that we struggle still to view gender appropriately. We struggle with it. And in that, in that mindset, in that iniquity, what Abraham didn't realize is that when he was trying to protect his wife or protect his family, he was objectifying his wife and playing according to that culture instead of standing up and being like, you can't treat her that way and holding his ground. And instead he was treating her as an object. And uh, that was uh, an iniquity. Stronghold. Anybody got any guesses of what the stronghold was in his life? He says why he did this. He tells Abimelech why he did this. Fear. He says, this is what he says, he says, I knew that there was no fear of God in this place, so I decided that we, I I made an agreement with my wife when we first got married and we knew we were going to be wandering. And he says, and God made me leave my home. He does this thing where he puts it on God. God made me, when God made me leave my home, I told my wife, you have to do this kindness to me that everywhere we go, you have to tell people you're my sister instead of my wife because that's going to work out really well for us. It's amazing how illogical we actually get when we our starting place is fear and we're trying to protect ourselves. Instead of the starting place being worship and following God. Because when we understand God's in charge and He calls the shots and we follow Him, then there's a freedom that says God's got this. What's interesting is, 
Is there any proof that Sarah would have been okay? Had God assured him in any way that Sarah would have been okay? How? She was going to have a baby. He said, next year I'm coming back and your wife will be here and she'll have a baby. And he gets into the situation and he gets afraid and he's like, oh man, tell him that you're my sister. Man, he's gonna be, she's going to be fine. How in the God's word stands true. She's going to have your child and be here with God next year. It's going to be okay. Just trust him. But because of his fear, he makes this agreement with her about how to kind of manipulate the situation in order to self-protect. How many of us, how many of us, I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I'll raise both of mine. How many of us at times have decided to do things that weren't all that smart in order to try to self-protect or to protect our assets or protect you know, our people or protect our interests or whatever? And we've done things that were like, you know, In the end, that probably wasn't the wisest move. If I had just had more confidence and more faith and it would have worked out instead of like trying to control the whole situation, you know? How many of us, right? We struggle with it. We struggle with it. Perfect love dries out fear. You remember what Abraham's call was? And through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. If he knew who he was in God, he would have walked down to Pharaoh and he would have said, I'm not afraid of you. As a matter of fact, I'm called by God to bless you. I wonder how I can be a blessing. I'll tell you one way I'm not going to bless you is by giving you my wife. Another way I might be able to bless you. And his imagination starts to work, you know? And with Abimelech, instead of being afraid of Abimelech, he's God's chosen person to bless Abimelech. But we have a hard time receiving the fullness of God's truth about us because we limit ourselves in fear. And then that fear gets us stuck in patterns. Okay? So all that was the first point. Don't worry. The second two points are super quick. The first point was this, that our behaviors shape our beliefs and our beliefs shape our behaviors. Two more points, and here's the, here's the one point, is that the amazing thing about the chapter 12 when this happened to Abraham down in, uh, in Egypt, thank you, Jay, um, and then when it happens here up in Canaan with Abimelech, the difference is that the ramifications aren't as bad. You notice that? Like, she doesn't actually end up engaging in relationship with Abimelech. God protects that whole situation. And therefore, the, the, the ultimate ramification isn't as bad. There is one ramification, which if you read in chapter 26, Isaac, their miraculously born son, says the exact same thing about his wife to the exact same guy. Messed up, right? That's generational iniquity is what that's called, okay? So that's the one ramification. But beyond that, we don't see the pervasive uh, uh, mess. Why? Because the covenant has been formed, and because of that, God is protecting him well beyond what he's able to protect himself of. And so even though he's still a mess and he isn't fixed, this is the story of God and how when God grabs a hold of someone, God starts to work in their life well beyond their own ability to work it out. God's in the scene. And so since they formed this covenant, what I love is is that God shows up to Abimelech in a dream and says, you better check yourself. That girl that you have right there belongs to my son. Do not touch her. I love this because all of his fear is entirely misplaced. He says, there's no fear of God. I have to find a way to make this. Man, God is God of the universe and shows up in a pagan's mind in a dream and says, check it. And the guy actually listens. 
That's why the fear was ridiculous. But the amazing part is that last time, God didn't protect in the same way. This time, a greater level of protection because he's formed this covenant with Abraham. And the amazing, beautiful thing is that God is working in our life even when we're not working for our own best interest. God is. But there's a major difference in the Old Testament. Those covenants, every guy who messes up massively in the Old Testament, all the saints, you know, most of them do that after the covenant. Like David, when he takes Bathsheba and kills Uriah, that's after he has a covenant with God. And like Noah, when he gets drunk and naked and there's the whole weird thing with his family and everything, like that happens after the covenant with God. In the New Testament, it's totally different. It's not that people are angels and perfect after they make their commitment to Christ, but we start seeing something change in their life drastically. Because the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and this is the point, is that cyclical stuff, those patterns, that God gets planted in our life in the form of the Holy Spirit and is like a mustard seed that begins to grow and change us and morph us and begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit because he regenerates the human heart. He awakens the human spirit and he writes his law on our hearts instead of on stone. The beauty about our covenant, which is different than that of Abraham's, is that God promises he can change our heart. Not just, we don't have to just do behavioral modification of our lives. We can invite God to change our hearts and our desires. And those of you who walk with the Lord know God's been walking, working on that, changing the way we think and see things. And that's why it says, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable. And, and uh, be not conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And God is renewing that. So um, I have one more point to make, and it's a quick one, but I want to pray with us real quick before I do. Because in that habitual place of sin, in that struggle, that perennial struggle you have, I want to just ask you in quietness to put that in front of the Lord and say, I am powerless to overcome this. I know that you love me, and I want you to take control of this situation. I want my behaviors to come in line, but I want you to change my heart and my desire." And God promises that he can write his law on your hearts and that he can give you a new heart, right? So let's take a second and just get before the Lord and ask him that. Just do that personally for whatever that thing is. You know what it is. Thank you, God. <clears throat> Last point. If you come back to the same thing and you thought you dealt with it, Jay McCumber's wife, Sherry, I don't know if you've met her, some of you have met her, she had this great thing she spoke to me one day um, about, she was talking about this situation, we were talking about repetitive sin and the struggle of it. And she said, you know, um, like when there's a tree and there's a tree stump and you get a rotor rooter to, to like kind of cut this thing out and you're going down and it has the spiral, you know, you cut the root off and then it comes around again and you hit that same root. But it's deeper this time. So sometimes I think when we deal with the same thing again, it's really easy for us to get despairing because you're like, oh man, I'm just going in circles. I thought we dealt with this. But maybe now we're at a different spot 
and that God's actually getting to a deeper part of our heart and our mind to undo things that are much deeper. And it's the same behavior we're dealing with or the same thought process, but it's in a deeper level. God is going, he's mining deeper down into our lives. If you've never read, there's this uh, book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality uh, by Peter Scazzaro, and he has a devotional about it called Day by Day, which, by the way, phenomenal devotional. If you're looking for a good uh, devotional, day by day, emotional, healthy, spirituality, great devotional. I want to read you just a little portion of this on on the one day. He says, as we go back in our lives in order to go forward, we find it's a never ending process. We go back breaking some destructive power in the past. And then later on, on a deeper level, God has us return to the same issue on a more profound level. Thomas Keating compares God's work in us to a Middle Eastern tell or archaeological site where one civilization is built on another in the same place. Archaeologists excavate level by level, culture by culture, down through history. The Holy Spirit, he says, is like a divine archaeologist digging down through the layers of our lives. The Spirit intends to investigate our whole life history, layer by layer, throwing out the junk and preserving the values that were appropriate to each stage of our human development. Eventually, the spirit begins to dig into the bedrock of our earliest emotional life. And hence, as we progress toward the center where God is actually waiting for us, we naturally are going to feel that we are getting worse. This warns us that the spiritual journey is not a success story or a career move. It is rather a series of humiliations of the false self. So good. The closer we get to God, the more we realize how many lies we picked up along the way. And the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the regenerative work, is when we are given salvation. And at the very beginning of our life with Christ, salvation, we just say, yes, God. We say yes. And then it says, the salvation works itself out in our lives. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And what that means is every corner of my body, my brain, my mind has to take the gospel that God's got this, God loves me, God's in charge, and it rewires everything. But it takes a while for like a virus that spreads out and, and invades in the same way in an awesome sense, the gospel works out into every lie that I'm believing. But it takes time for that to undo deep things that are in me. So whatever your struggle is, when you revisit it again, don't be discouraged over the fact that you're still there. Instead, invite the Holy Spirit to do the deeper work of revealing why am I doing this and speak the truth to me so that I can hold on now with authority to the truth of what it is that sets me free from this. At the end of the story, Abraham has this awesome moment where God actually says to Abimelech, hey, I know you didn't mean to do anything wrong, but you won't be healed until Abraham prays for you. And you're like, Abimelech didn't do anything wrong. Abraham did do something wrong, but Abimelech is suffering the consequences and can't be healed until Abraham, the perpetrator, prays for him. That's weird. That's weird, God. And what this speaks of is that this is the story of God, not the story of Abraham. And that Abraham's authority is not in place because of his own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of God. And the more we come to terms with the fact that we are a mess, 
But God is really good the more authority we have to actually be a blessing to other people. When we stand confident in our own selves, we only have limited ability to minister to other people. But as God does that work in our life, to dig down deep in and it's like, oh man, I didn't see that and I didn't see that. There's a danger inside of us to think, I don't have the right to bless anyone or to do anything or to tell anyone anything. And it's true, we don't have the right. We don't have a self-righteous place. We can't be in judgment and tell other people. However, we realize that the calling of God on our lives is not based on us getting things right and knowing the right things. It's the fact that as God is revealing our own brokenness, at the same time, he's offering the fullness of himself, not based on our righteousness, but based on his promise to us and his gift through the cross. Each person in this room has spectacular power and authority to change your world, to change the people you're connected to, to change your workplace, to change your family, to undo iniquities and strongholds and sins, to set people free. You have amazing power to bless people in prayer the same way that Abraham did. And any and every lie of the enemy seeks to keep you from feeling the authority of God that exists within you by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I would encourage you that when you are discouraged with your own sin, don't allow that to be something that sidelines you. Allow that to be the reminder that this isn't about you, it's about God. And And that very sin that I struggle with is the thing that reminds me, ah, this is God's and my authority is not found in myself. It's found in God. All I have to do is confess that and remember, I'm as free as can be. I am good in the eyes of God. I am forgiven. I am loved. And I can speak with broken humility to the person next to me who I'm no better than and is no better than me. And I can say the same gift that is given to me is extended to you. Can I bless you? And can I pray for you? Don't be discouraged by that cyclical stuff. It's not a cycle. It's a spiral. He's digging down and he's setting you free deeper and deeper and deeper so that he can give you more authority so you can bless others deeper and deeper and deeper. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your gift of presence in our life. Your gift of invading every corner of our mind. Man, the lies that we tend to believe. Man, I don't know why in the world we are so consumed with wanting to believe false things so we can justify behavior that ends up being self-destructive. It's just because we struggle. There's sin in us. We know it. Some of it's our own choices. Some of it's our parents' choices. Some of it's the culture's choices. But it's all a mess. And what we realize, God, is that we need your work and you have given us your love entirely. So we invite you. We open up our hearts. We open up our minds. And we just say, please have your way, God. Give us the full life, the abundant life, the eternal life, the free life, life with God, life in harmony with other people, life where you restore us to the wholeness of what we are. We realize that that never gets us to a place where we feel good on our own merit, but it does get us to the place where we are extremely grateful for your grace and your work in our life. And we thank you for that, God. And then release us from being just totally about ourselves and help us to move beyond like those New Testament saints who who were showing the fruit of the Spirit in love and saying, my life's no longer about me or trying to get self-righteous or self-justified. My life is for the service of others. God's got this.
God's got this. So we invite you to do that work. And as we transition God now in this service to affirming deacons and, and uh, transitioning into love feast and doing all those things uh, throughout the rest of the day here, God, we just ask that any lie that would seek to say, uh, to keep us from experiencing the fullness of you, that you just allow us to know the truth and to walk in it. Thank you for the gift of this body and this time together. In the name of Jesus, amen.